Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. Um, I'm excited. Next week, we launch into our series in Galatians. And so, uh, one of the tools that we'd love to provide for you is a Galatians journal, which has the text and your ability to follow um, on over there. That's going to be at the back. One of the uh, kind of key values that we have is to preach through the Bible, and so we're going to be doing Galatians through until Easter. I'm very, very excited about that. My name's Nick. I want to pray before we get started. Father, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for your kindness and your faithfulness, your power and your authority. And I want to thank you that these are not decisions you make. This is the very nature of who you are. I want to pray this morning uh, for your anointing. I want to pray for your ability through the Holy Spirit uh, to be faithful to your word. I want to pray that you would give us ears to hear, in Jesus' name. March 10th, 2013, we met a group of us in a place called Lemon Park, and uh, that was our first vision and prayer meeting, March 10th, 2013. And then April through August, we had our monthly prayer and vision meetings also at Lemon Park, In September of 2013, we started meeting at Laguna Road Elementary School, and then in January of 2014, the first Sunday, we started gathering here as Southlands Fullerton. And then in 2019, in September, we became Mercy Commons. God has been so incredibly kind to us. And, uh, (laughs) nothing has happened yet. He has been so faithful and so good. And I I just remember this morning waking up thinking a number of things had not gone necessarily as planned and thinking to myself, like the self-talk, calm down, relax. What a joy it is to serve a God that doesn't have to go through that process. What a joy it is to serve a God that is ultimately completely sovereign, in control, loving, kind, and powerful, and doesn't have to talk himself into doing that. This morning, I want to talk about remembering who God is and who we are. I have a friend called Joel Baker. Some of you know him. He hates post-its. And so what I did was I got a whole bunch of post-its and just filled his office with post-its. Um, Post-its are really helpful to me uh, because I use them to remember things. I, uh, I, use, I put them on, the, um, on my front door just before a trip, charger, passports, because those are the things that I usually forget. Uh, and so that's why post-its are seriously helpful. Post-its are not helpful for things that require a lot more attention. Um, I remember Stephen was helping me with my brakes in the car, and there was a post-it on my front windscreen. And he's like, bro, this is not how you handle this. The post-it said, remember, brakes don't work. <laughs> so, so he's like, you've got to find another way of coping with this problem. I'm like, well, that's why I'm here. See, the post-it worked. <laughs> I also use post-its definitely not as often as I should, but every now and then I, t- I take a post-it and I, I post it on my daughter's mirror and I remind them of who they are. 
And I just, I just speak those things um, over them. And this morning is one of those mornings where I'm hopefully going to remind you of two key things, who the God is that we serve and who we are as a result. Uh, Samuel Johnson says that men more frequently require to be reminded than informed. And ordinarily, I would say that that is not gender-specific, but in this case, I would say it is gender-specific. Men need reminding more often uh, than they need to be informed. I want to take us back to a scripture that we started with um, in Lemon Park, and it was the story of Moses with the people of God, and Moses was telling God, please don't send us unless your presence goes with us, because how will they know unless your presence goes with us. And one of the key things that we said is we wanted to be a people that were marked by the presence of God. We wanted to be a people that when the rest of the community in the city looked at us, they would have a picture of who this God is. This next portion of Scripture is kind of a weird portion of Scripture because it comes just after some severe judgment from God because the Israelites had decided that Moses was taking too long up in the mountain God had given Moses the Ten Commandments, and Moses came down, and the Israelites had built or made a golden calf, and they'd started worshiping that. And so what had happened is there was, there was judgment that had happened. A number of Israelites died as a result of that. And Moses said, God, I don't know that I want to do this anymore. I don't know that I want to continue leading this people. I want to be able to see you face to face. And God says to Moses, you can't see me face to face but I'll kind of show you the back of me as I pass by. And this is where we pick up that scripture in Exodus 34, verse 6. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What's interesting to me is that the very first word that God uses to self-describe himself is merciful. Now, you've got to understand the context. This is within the context of thousands of Israelites dying because of their disobedience. And God says to Moses, I'm going to show you who I am, and the God that I am is a God that is merciful, a God that is gracious, that is long-suffering and abounding in goodness, keeping mercy for the thousands and forgiving iniquity, but, but by no means clearing the guilty. God's self-identification is a shadow of the gospel because in that moment there is the, the bad news and the good news. The bad news is that because of original sin, that we are tainted and broken image bearers of God, and something needs to be done. Uh, the penalty for sin needs to be paid for, and the good news is that we can't pay for that penalty. The good news is that God sent His Son to be able to pay for that penalty. The iniquity of the fathers was indeed visited upon the children, but such is the love of God that He visited the punishment of sin upon His child, Jesus Christ. In Matthew 27, verse 25, there's a portion of Scripture where Jesus is standing before Pilate, and it's Pilate and Barabbas, and he says to the crowd, who should I release? And 
uh, they say to Pilate, release to us Barabbas, but he says, um, are you sure? Because I don't want, this man has done nothing, I don't want his blood to be on our, my hands. And the crowd retorts, and the crowd says, his blood be on us and our children. And what they meant by that was that we will be responsible. We will take the responsibility for his death. We want him to die. But in reality, what we know is that his blood was upon them and upon their children, but just not in the way that they thought. It was the shed blood of Jesus on the cross that brought forgiveness. It was the shed blood of Jesus on the cross that actually fulfilled what God had said as he self-identified himself in the Old Testament. Our identity and our purpose flows out of who God is and what he has already done for us. The New Testament scripture that we've built um, Mercy Commons around is 1 Peter 2 verses 9 to 12. So in the Old Testament, we have this idea that in the Old Testament, God is grumpy, and in the New Testament, God is cool. But actually, what we need to understand is the Old Testament gives us a picture of this merciful, loving, and kind God. The New Testament shows us how that God was going to be loving and kind while dealing with the issue of sin at the same time. 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar or special or prized people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles or aliens to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. It's out of this passage that we have felt that God has led us into the four pillars of Mercy Commons. The four pillars of Mercy Commons is the fact that because we have been rescued by the mercy of God, we revel in the mercy of God. That God has called us to display His mercy in the way in which we live in this world. God has called us to proclaim His mercy to those that have not yet heard. And God has also called us to participate in acts of mercy for the common good of our city and for the glory of God. So why do we revel? We revel because judgment has been fulfilled through mercy. Peter tells the church that once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And we, we understand that sin is, is an offense against God, and it's an offense against God because God is the holiest, uncreated being. And so any sin that we commit, whether we commit it against our own bodies or whether we commit it against someone else, is first a sin against God. But it's not only that. It's the fact that it damages us and it damages those that we sin against us. Um, what Peter says is that the sin wars against our souls. And the way in which we were created and the way in which God had determined for us to function, sin actually wars against our souls. He made us, He loves us, and He wants us to be free from those things that bring us pain and bring others <coughs> pain. Excuse me. Now, the, 
The concept of judgment is not something a lot of people want to talk about. We avoid the concept of judgment. It sounds barbaric, and it doesn't seem aligned to the idea of the nature and character of God. But God self-describes Himself as someone who is scandalously loving, and therefore, not however, but because He is scandalously loving, He has to deal with the problem of sin. And so we always look at the idea of judgment and mercy as two competing aspects, but they're not. Because it is the mercy of God that fulfills the judgment of God. Without the mercy of God, we aren't free from the judgment of sin and the pain that sin has caused us. We weren't just lost little children, cute and naive, that needed to find our way back home. We were arrogant, proud people that say to God consistently, I'm going to do this my way. What I love about the fact that judgment is fulfilled through mercy is that it's not just our accidental sin that God deals with. It's so much easier, right, when someone comes to you and says, hey, look, I made a mistake. I didn't mean to do this. It's, it's kind of easier for us to say, well, then don't worry about it. I forgive you. But when someone comes and says to you, I actually intentionally premeditated and planned to harm you, that's a little more difficult to forgive. But such is the mercy of God that all of our sin, premeditated, accidental, even the sin that we don't understand that we're walking in, is 100% forgiven by the mercy of God. Judgment is also a foreign concept to us, because most of us want instant karma, right? How many of you guys have seen those YouTube channels about instant karma? I love those, because that's, that's me. Like, if someone does something bad, I want something bad to happen to them directly afterwards. That's my sinful nature. That's how I operate, you know? And so, it's probably a little bad that on the side of the YouTube channel, I have a whole bunch of like, you'll probably enjoy this, you know? <laughs> People doing stupid things and hurting themselves, you know? And the idea of judgment is like, if you do something wrong, then something bad will happen to you right at that moment. And uh, I've, I've mentioned the story before, but I was riding home. I was in high school. I was riding home on my bike back when people did that. And um, I remember seeing someone in my class that I didn't like. And as I was turning the corner, I, I proceeded to lace into a string of vulgarities about this guy, like who he was and what he represented and everything. And I was, I was riding my bike, and I was turning around the corner, and I was talking to him like this. And I look up, and there's this truck right there. And I smack right into the back of the truck, flip around. My bike goes under the bottom of the truck. I was carrying, uh, I know, this is how old I am, glass milk bottles from the dairy, okay? Um, that scattered on the ground. I landed on the glass. I was all cut up, okay? That was instant judgment. Do you know what made it 10 times worse? He came to help me. How is that for rubbing it in? He didn't stand there and say, ah, how do you like me now? He came to help me. Now, what happens in our minds is we think, if I do something wrong and nothing happens, I got away with it. Now, let me tell you this. The grace of God is consistently available for us. Because I can tell you this. There are things that very few people know about, that I have carried very deeply, because nothing bad has happened to me as a result of me acting in those ways. 
And that's where I need, more than anything, the mercy of Jesus to lift that off me. Because I can go and I can confess, and I can say, God, I can't believe I acted in that way, said that thing, did that thing, didn't say or do that thing. And I need your grace to forgive me. It's the things that we get away with that we carry the heaviest. But it's those things that Jesus wants to purge with his mercy. Tozer says this, when Jesus died on the cross, the mercy of God did not become any greater. It could not become any greater for it was already infinite. We have this odd notion that God is showing mercy because Jesus died. No, Jesus died because God is showing mercy. It was the mercy of God that gave us Calvary, not Calvary that gave us mercy. If God had not been merciful, there would not have been an incarnation, no babe in a manger, no man on a cross, and most importantly, no open tomb. Judgment has been fulfilled through mercy. We have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. The one who called you out of darkness into light. He experienced the utter darkness of death so that we could have life and light no longer groping around in the darkness. Now, this is not just a sense of being blind. That is one thing, but it's also a sense, the Bible talks about us as being in darkness and coming out of darkness into light, but the Bible also talks, us about, us, talks about us being darkness. You once were darkness. And the thing that we've been rescued from as Christ followers is not just the things that are done in the dark, that we can actually bring those things out into the light and say, Jesus, this is, this is what I've done. This is who I am. You can rescue me from that, but you can also give me the power to overcome those things. It's also the things that have been done to us in the dark. It's the things that have wounded us. It's the things that have caused us trauma that God is able to set us free from, from darkness to light. The darkness that we were in now into light. The darkness that others have tried to put upon us now into light. We've become his own special treasure. Scripture tells us that we were once enemies of God because of the fact that sin separated us from a holy father. So we weren't acquaintances that have become good friends. The Bible says that we were once enemies and we have become his special possession. You are a chosen race, race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a special prized people for, your own, for his own possession. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Now, Peter is writing this to a collection of Gentile churches. And in the early church, what happened was there was this kind of separation between God's real people, which were the Israelites, and kind of the Gentiles that had this weird kind of connection with God through Jesus, but weren't really God's people. And Peter and Paul are consistently breaking down that barrier and are saying, because of your faith in Jesus Christ, you have become God's people. God's people used to be the fact that you could trace your physical lineage from an Israelite parent. God's lineage now is no longer that. You are a special possession of God because you have said yes to Jesus. What identifies us is not that we speak the same or look the same, it's the fact that we have the same dad. I love there are uh, families in our community that are fostering and adopting. And the cool thing is, as you look at their families and you're like, 
so what happened here? Like, who's your dad? And the reality is all of them will say, he's my dad. Because it's not about who they look like. It's not even about who they physically came from. It's about who defines them as their child. You are my child. You are God's children. And that's what Peter is saying to the church. And that's what God is reminding us of this morning. We don't raise our value, which has kind of become a key thing in the context in which we live. We don't raise our value by hiding our sin. We don't raise our value by reveling in our sin. This is who I am, and God forgives me. We become significant by remembering that in spite of our sin, and in spite of our brokenness, and in spite of our trials, that we belong to Him. Nothing will ever change that. Our brokenness, our sin, and our experience is not powerful enough to separate us from our Father. You are not loved because you fulfill a purpose, but you are so loved that God has given you a purpose. You're not loved because you fulfill a purpose, but you are so loved that God has given you a purpose. And what is your purpose? To display the mercy of God. How do we display the mercy of God? We live as a purposeful family. We display a mercy that is both common in its accessibility and uncommon in its value and power. What does that mean? Simple, simple things. We provide meals for one another. We pray for one another. We help people move. We send people or we take people to the airport. I know that's a big ask, but we do, we do some people do that. But Nick, lots of people do that. You know, I know like sports teams, communities that are tight like that. I know like uh, CrossFit communities that are tight like that. Yeah, but there is this one difference. One of the things that we strive for as a family is to be known and to be loved and to be challenged. And that is the, probably the most unique difference between being part of a purposeful family and being part of any other community that does kind things for another community is the idea that we are known, loved, and challenged. Francis Schaeffer puts it this way, let us be careful indeed to spend a lifetime studying to give honest answers, but after we've done our best to communicate to a lost world, still we must never forget the final apologetic which Jesus gave is the observable love of true Christians for true Christians. There's something truly compelling about a group of people that sacrificially love each other, especially when they don't necessarily agree with each other. There's nothing unique about a group of people serving and loving each other when everything we believe is exactly what Patrick and I believe. There is something supernatural about the fact that our primary identity as brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ is what we orb around first, rather than the secondary identities that try and tear us apart. If we can't sacrificially love each other, then we can't actually do the same for fallen, broken, and difficult people that don't know yet Jesus. If we can't do this in the context of our own community, then our evangelism and witness becomes what Paul says, an empty gong, because there is no love that backs that up. We display His mercy by living as a royal priesthood. That means that we are servants, ministers, and bridge builders. 
There is a higher purpose to our togetherness. The Bible talks of many words that are used to describe the church, and two of the key ones are priesthood and temple. And this is the weird idea is that our, our collective worship, your presence here, is what creates a temple. It creates a sacred space for others to be able to experience God. Yes, we have individual, personal access to God through Jesus Christ. But every single time that our identity is mentioned, it's mentioned as a collective noun, the priesthood, the temple, together, building stones. There is a togetherness that is connected with that. We are people that minister to each other, that serve each other, and that tend to the temple. And we tend to the temple in the sense that we tend to the physical temple, like literally someone put the lights up, but we also tend to the temple with someone I saw this morning, how are you doing? Can I pray for you? Not up front here, just in the corner at the back. How do we display God's mercy? We display God's mercy because we live as sojourners and aliens. Now, early Christians were considered very alien. They didn't attend the gladiatorial games. They didn't attend orgies. And so they were seen as antisocial. They didn't join the army for Caesar's conquests. So they were seen as unpatriotic. They were against abortion and more specifically infanticide because in those days people would have babies rather and then kill them after they came out. They were against that and, and believe it or not, they empowered women in the context in which they lived. There were those that were against sex outside of marriage and same sex and they were considered outside or behind the times. They were radically for the poor they welcomed all ethnicities and classes, and they even suffered and died for the reality that peace with God could only be accomplished through faith in Jesus Christ. When Peter is writing to these people, he's writing to a people that are being persecuted for their faith. So they were antisocial, they were unpatriotic, they were bigots, they were sexually repressed. What if there was a group today that was against colonial military conquest, that empowered women that served the poor and pursued diversity. It sounds liberal, right? What if there was a group that was against abortion, that saw sex as sacred, as an act between a man and a woman within the context of marriage, and saw Christ as the only way to salvation? Sounds conservative, doesn't it? Guess what? We don't fit into any group. We are sojourners and aliens. We are citizens of heaven. We've always been aliens, and God has called us to live in these ways that mirror something of His justice in all of those things. Like I said, remember, it's easy to love people that think exactly the same way that you do. It's much harder to listen to someone and say, your heart has been transformed by the grace of God, and this thing is important to you. I want to understand why. We can be those kinds of people. I went to South Africa last year, and um, I was sitting down there with people, and someone said to me, where are you from? And I'm like, what? What do you mean, where are you from? Your accent, where is that from? I'm like, are you kidding me? And they're like, no, you sound American. I'm like, I sound American? I come here, and what do you think I hear? 
where are you from? And I sat there and I thought about that for a moment. And for most of my adult life, I've been here 20 years, most of my adult life, I'm always asked this question, where am I from? Doesn't matter where I am in the world. Because once I moved here, I definitely enunciate my R's a little more. I used to say Peter, now I say Peter, right? I used to say burger, and now I say burger. You know? And so I, I was sitting there in a moment thinking, I, I, don't, I don't fit in, th no, that's not true. I seem not to fit in this world. I seem not to fit in this side, but the reality is, is that I do fit in both. What's key for us to understand is not this idea, we're not trying to live like aliens. We're not trying to actually point out the differences that we have, but what we are doing is we're all being around our primary identity as brothers and sisters of Jesus. And there will always be a group that says, where are you from? You believe this, you live like this, well, that doesn't make sense in terms of why I understand the caricature of Christianity be. Or we say this, or we believe this, and well, that doesn't fit with what I understand of God. But we know, we see in Scripture that all of these things are important. That's how we display His mercy. We proclaim His mercy. Verse 9 says that you proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. There is a sense, church, where we need to open our mouths. Our actions are important, and our actions actually help fortify the message that we speak, but our tongues need to be engaged as well. And I would say this, it isn't just enough for us to be able to speak of the hope that is within us. We also do need to become better at listening, because oftentimes, if we spend more time listening to someone, we will be able to understand exactly what we are to say. Now, Philip was a, I didn't offend those two. <laughs> They're serving you, getting ready for the lunch, so. And now I lost my place. That was a pointless exercise. <laughs> when Philip, who's known as the evangelist, in the Bible, Philip is known as the evangelist. Anyone know that, right? Okay. Does the Bible record how many people Philip brought to faith? One person. One person. He listened to this Ethiopian eunuch who was reading the Old Testament, and he asks him this question, do you know what you're reading? Do you know what this is about? And the Ethiopian eunuch says, how can I? unless someone explains it to me. And Philip says, I'll call my pastor and he'll do that. What does he do? He gets up on the carriage, on the chariot, and he explains to the Ethiopian eunuch. Now history tells us that the Ethiopian eunuch actually started what's known as the Coptic church in Ethiopia. But we have one recorded event of Philip the evangelist bringing someone to faith. There are multiple ways that we can proclaim the mercies of God. You can have a personality like Peter, who on that day stood up in front of a crowd of people and declared what has been happening. Men of Israel, these men are not drunk as you suppose. This is what the prophet Joel was talking about. You can be like Philip. You can be like Priscilla and Aquila, 
who see this guy called Apollos and think, you know what, that guy is onto something. He needs more discipleship. You know what we're going to do? We're going to tell him how wrong he is publicly. No. We're going to invite him into our home, and we're going to teach him the way of God more accurately. Now, I know for most of us, this idea of proclamation is like door-to-door or um, in a coffee shop or whatever. There are multiple ways that we can proclaim the mercies of God who called us out of darkness into light. So don't get caught in this, this is not my personality. Ask God, Father, if you've called me to do this, then how can you help me to do this with the gifts that I have? We're supposed to talk about Jesus more, (coughs) (coughs) excuse me, more than we talk about the lusts of the world that we need to abstain from. More than the temporal, more than the warring against our soul. We, we are people that are called to be merciful, but sometimes we can be judgmental, but also sometimes we can also be, hey, you be you, because we don't want to be judgmental. We've said before, and I'll say it again, we cannot be fully spiritually formed unless we are on mission, and we cannot be effectively on mission unless we're being actively spiritually formed by the Word, by prayer, and the body of Christ. Those two come together. One of the key things that we have been told to do, not just as Mercy Commons, but as believers everywhere, is to conform to the image of Christ, is to become like Jesus. What did Jesus come to do? To seek and save those that were lost. If our life isn't orbed around the reality that proclamation is something that we are called to do, then one of the things we've got to ask God for through His Spirit is help me to understand the privilege of being able to proclaim the mercies of Him who called me out of darkness into His marvelous light. And finally, we participate in acts of mercy. I've spoken about this much, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but verse 11 and 12 says, keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable. It talks about displaying so that they would see your good deeds and glorify our God. Our personal behavior needs to reflect the idea that we abstain from the passions of this world, and our public engagement needs to show something that contradicts the caricatures of Christianity. And this is one of those things where we are engaged in issues that are not just tribal Christian issues, but are issues of justice and mercy beyond our tribe. And those are not difficult. And this is an area where God has been so incredibly faithful to us in the sense that we as a small community of faith in Fullerton are definitely punching above our weight when it comes to the the areas that God has invited us into with regards to the city. And we do that with joy and we do that with a sense of purpose, knowing that ultimately what we want is people would see our good works and glorify God. You know, the interesting thing is that refugees, aliens, and foreigners, and trust me, I know this, are often seen as a drain on the nation. And what Peter is saying to these aliens and sojourners is, you guys are not a drain to the community that you're in. You guys are actually supporting and sustaining and pushing this community forward so that they would be able to glorify God. Band, you can come up. Oftentimes, 
the idea of reminding people who they are can be seen as some kind of backhanded chide. You're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. You're not living the way you're supposed to be living. That really isn't the purpose of this. And on our ninth kind of anniversary, I wanna, I wanna thank Mercy Commons. Firstly, obviously, and we've done that this morning, I wanna thank Jesus Christ, our chief shepherd and overseer of our souls. I wanna thank him for his faithfulness and consistency. September, like I said, September 2019, we became Mercy Commons, and then March 2020, Will lost its mind. We're in 2023, and we're looking forward, having experienced those two years of God's kindness and faithfulness and sustaining grace. But Mercy Commons, you amaze me because of your generosity, your sacrifice, your trust. You are revelers in the purest form of the word. You guys display his mercy and you are a fragrance of Jesus. You are a welcoming oasis in a world of judgment and contention. You proclaim his mercy through your direct and indirect challenge of the values of this world. You're also a strong people that want to be challenged because you want to be conformed into the likeness of Jesus. And consistently and over and over, you choose comfort and convenience over safety and security. You are not consumers of spiritual products, but you are covenantal sacrificial family and your tireless participation in the acts of mercy for the common good of Fullerton and for the city are things that rise in it as an incense to Jesus. You are motivated by His Spirit, empowered by His grace, not by guilt or tradition. You love Jesus. You love His church, and you love the broken world that He's called us to live in. You have sown gospel seed. You've been faithful. And by His grace, I believe that we will reap a gospel reward. This morning, there is one thing that I am more convinced of than anything, is that Jesus will continue to lead us on, humbly onward with a conviction and courage, but with humility, Jesus will lead us on. And maybe you're here this morning, and one of the ways that Jesus can lead you into is just that initial step of faith. Maybe the one thing that Jesus can lead you into is coming out of darkness into his light, is coming out of being an enemy of God into becoming his prized position. Or maybe you follow Jesus for a long time and there isn't necessarily this excitement and reveling in your faith. It's become cold and dry. Maybe there isn't the sense in the way in which your life is not necessarily displaying the mercies of God. Maybe you need the Spirit's help to be able to proclaim the mercies of God or participate in acts of mercy for the common good. This I know. Jesus will lead us on. Won't you stand with me? In, um, in the same posture that we uh, began with this morning, I was just thinking about the reality that when Jesus instituted this, he took the bread into his hands and he blessed it. He thanked God for it. 
and he broke it the way that his body would be broken and he handed it out um, for 2,000 years he's still been handing it out to all who would receive it and it requires our hands to be open to receive it it is a gift it's a gift that um, was given once for all where his body was broken so that we could be made whole and we take this bread in remembrance of what he did in remembrance of him also took the cup and he reminds us that this is the blood of the new covenant which deals with every sin it deals with every sin it is the price that's paid to erase the barrier between us and the father for us to receive the gift of the identity that Nick was talking about become sons and daughters of the living God to be with him so church we take this cup in remembrance of Jesus spilt blood and the forgiveness the total and complete forgiveness of our sins Jesus, we, uh, we thank you. We thank you that you have not left us orphans. You have given us your Holy Spirit, that you've done all that we need and that you have given us all things, that we would be a people that learn to taste and see that you're good, that we'd revel in who you are, the mercy that we have received, God. Father, for this new year, this days ahead, Lord, that you would re-remind us of the gift that we have received, your generous, lavish mercy that we'd revel in it, God, that we would be a people that do display your mercy, that we can't help but do that because it comes out of us, it comes natural because of us being reminded so consistently of your great affection and love for us, your mercy for us, how you took care of all that we needed. Lord, how could we not but display your mercy to others? To share and to proclaim, Lord, would you help us to become a people more and more that know how to proclaim that you're just good, who you are, that we could show a world that needs to know that. And also, Lord, that we would participate in all the things that you have for us to participate in. Lord, what's next? What do you have for your people? What's next? Lord, this morning I pray for my brothers and sisters. If there's things that they're uh, holding on to that need to be reminded of, they need to be reminded of their identity in you. I pray that they'd receive prayer this morning. 
God, as we go back into this worship, this one last song, would you reground us in all of these things? And would you help our hearts to hold open to you that question of what's next? What do you want to do, God? And we're here for it. Lord, help us to, in a sense, to say, God, here I am. Send me what, what's next. What do you have for us? We love you. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.